Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. All the bars separating everybody. All the bars separating everybody. Some bars, racial bars. Yeah, racial bars. Um, class bars, color bars, religious bars, every bar in the world, right? I mean, tons of prisons between everybody, between races, between religions, between countries, between tribes, bars, bars, walls. It's fucking Donald Trump wants to put up another wall, right? That's never going to happen, right? Do you think that wall is ever going to happen? I don't think that wall is ever going to get built. And if it gets built, it'll be one of the saddest things that ever happened. The de-evolution of, uh, of the human race and how it has more or less evolved, despite all its flaws and setbacks, over the centuries, over the millennia, um, out from tribalism 
And like I say, it really looks like it's coming back again, right? All this insular tribalism looks like it's coming back. But I think there's a, a great movement, if you could just um, take a godlike view of it and uh, look at the <laughs> whatever God has to do with it. Um, take a godlike view of it, and you see uh, over the last uh, you know few thousand years— Breakups of tribalism, breakups of tribalism, uh, breakups of um, of religious differences. Does it look that way? No, like I say, it does not look that way. In fact, often these days, you pick up the paper, you turn on TV, you, or whatever other technology you get your news on and everything. It looks like it's going exactly backwards. And I mean, in our country, you get a guy like Trump and all the uh, rednecks that are behind him, all the ignorant assholes who uh, insisted on voting for him um, because they thought that he actually meant what he said or that he uh, cared about them at all. Uh, all this stuff about building walls, and then you see all the things that are happening in Charlottesville, um, all this anti-immigrant behavior, all, this, uh, all the violence, all the racism, which persists and persists and persists you know, against blacks, against Latinos. And then... You know, the idea of this wall. And what happened in Charlottesville, the Nazis are back, right? White supremacists. This is the last, I believe, I believe, certainly I hope, but I believe this is the last gasp of this kind of thing. What will happen next? I don't know. I mean, this country has been um, absorbing waves of immigrants, uh, poor Indians, right, who uh, <clears throat> were the first uh, immigrants here thousand, two thousand years ago, but uh, lived here for a long, long time before the Europeans showed up. And then all the immigrants coming in. And in New York City, what I know about, the Irish, right? First the Irish, Jews, the Italians, uh, <clears throat> the Puerto Ricans, other people from other, other Latinos from other countries, uh, Central America, South America, mostly Central America, Mexico, all these people pouring in, and then from the Middle East, you know, um, Arabs, um, people from um, Syria, from Lebanon, from Egypt. There's a lot of people from Egypt in New York City, and from uh, Yemen, from Somalia. Uh, people two blocks away from me run their Yemenis. They run the uh, local lottery store. Call it used to call it a candy store, <laughs> but everything that was a candy store or uh, a little candy stand out on the street on Broadway. sell newspapers and candy and uh, cigarettes uh, now exists entirely, probably 90% on the profits of, um, of selling lottery tickets. So all these people are here. All these people are here. The Asians are here. Uh, everybody, waves and waves of immigrants. Uh, and maybe you know what it is. You live in New York City. Maybe you get this skewed view. You get this really odd wrong view of, of, of people intermingling. In my neighborhood, you could walk uh, 10 blocks <clears throat> in both directions from where I live. Um, and there are people, you might hear 10, 15 different languages. You'll see people of every shade, color you could possibly imagine. People from 30, 40 different countries. People owning businesses, students, um, people moving in, people moving out, going everywhere. Um, it's just astounding. People who work in the streets, people who work for Con Ed, people who show up at your house to fix things, um, stores, like I say, that you go into. It's extraordinary. <clears throat> but um, but uh, I suppose, and I don't travel that much or hardly at all, and a few times I have, 
it was a long time ago, so I don't know how different it is. But in cities, I suppose you see more and more of this in cities. There's more uh, diversity, the more um, the mixing of people, uh, and generally speaking, I think probably the acceptance of people. It's it's where it's where there are still vast patches of the country, mostly rural or suburban areas. Um, and maybe some cities in um, in the South and the West, or maybe in the Midwest, um, where you get this uh, remaining white str- these remaining white strongholds. I understand it was their country. Should I say our country? I don't know. Being a Jew in New York City, I never considered myself absolutely white. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I had a, a friend once who uh, grew up Italian in Philadelphia, and he said they used to refer to white people. They didn't consider themselves, especially the first generation Italians, uh, didn't consider themselves, uh, quote unquote, white people. But, um, yeah, I mean, so so all these people, you know, mingling, merging, coming together. uh, Yes. okay. there's the lunatics on every side. There are the ultra orthodox and the white supremacists and the uh, the terrorists, the Islamic terrorists, uh, people who are. Dead set against mingling with anybody, mingling races, mingling even they won't even look at other people. They don't want to be they don't want to walk out of their neighborhoods, they don't want to see anybody else, they don't want to know anybody else. And if they uh, suspect or imagine or are or their fears or are uh, are provoked by uh, by insensitive, power hungry, opportunistic assholes like Donald Trump and uh, some of the Republican conservatives, then they will react. They will react. And um, this is what we're getting. Will we ever have a civil war in this country between the rear guard, the remaining guard of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, white people who are angry and scared and a lot of them armed? And uh, who, would they, who would they fight? The government? Local police forces? State police forces? The federal government? What kind of civil war would we have? I don't think we're going to have one. I don't think we're going to have one. And... You can't control uh, the insanity at the extremes, um, at the extremes, uh, in the extremes of uh, people's communities. If there are terrorists of certain kinds, there are terrorists. And um, if there are insular people, if there are Nazis, if there are people who are fundamentalist Islamic terrorists, if there are people like that, can't control them. And the trouble is when they act out, when they do something like this, they... um, they set every. They seem to set everything back, but I don't think they're going to set everything back. So what set this off? I don't even remember why I started talking about this. Um, seems the way the world is. Anyhow, this time of the year, I was talking a couple of weeks ago about how I can't stand this time of the year. Um, the fall. I do not like the fall. Always back to school. And for me personally, um, all kinds of other reasons, some very, very, very nasty anniversaries happened in the fall uh, when I was a kid and then into my 20s. And I still retain the trauma and the shock and the despondency that sort of comes back in waves. And I have to fight very hard each fall to, and maybe people have other seasons where they feel that way. The winter is that way for some people. Maybe the summer is that way for some people. The spring, I don't know. Spring always seems to be a nice time for most people, but who could who can say? It depends on the way you grew up, what your life experiences were, right? Um, but the fall, the worst for me. The light going, getting colder, and like I say, certain really 
terrible, like tragic anniversaries for me. Uh, life changing and not such a good way anniversaries. And one of the things that's coming up in the fall that always, and this, this is where uh, uh, my, uh, my virtual religion, if I have any religion at all, it's alienation. <laughs> uh, not that I believe in alienation. It's just that I, uh, I was sort of brought up in it and have assumed and uh, become alienated from about everybody and everything. Most particularly uh, at this time of the year, I think about being alienated from my people. I don't know what the word would be for it. From my group, from my tribe. And I was just talking, going on and on about how tribes are, are responsible for so much grief and trouble and acrimony in the world. And they are. But uh, um, my co-religionists, I don't know what, other Jews, other Jews. This time of the year, every year, the same thing happens to me. Uh, I have... Uh, it's a story, right? But I never, I never really, since I was uh, in my uh, my early years, even up until my uh, mid-teens, I was a, a little religious because my grandmother was around, who insisted on maintaining the religion in my house. But um, anyway, after she went, there no particular religion, no particular religion. So every year, year after year after year, um, decades after decades, up until now, I have had very mixed feelings and very generally avoided this. Now, I go out on but I always feel guilty and, and strange because, um, and this has a lot to do with your childhood, right? I grew up, I don't know how you grew up, you grew up Christian, you grew up Jewish, you grew up, uh, what, Catholic, uh, Protestant, whatever, Episcopalian, Baptist, Muslim, <clears throat> I don't know. Whatever, however you grew up and your family, whether they were, if they were religious or not, or observed the rituals, even if it was only a couple of times a year, they instill that in you. It gets instilled in you. And um, it's something that you never really lose. So this time in the year, uh, I, I, and this has happened for quite a while now, I walk around my neighborhood, and it's still pretty much, uh, no, I can't say it's a Jewish neighborhood, but there's still a lot of Jews in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And um, <clears throat> I see a lot of uh, Jewish people, families, out uh, walking, dressed up, out walking for the Jewish holidays. The Jewish holidays are upon us. It's Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what you see uh, during these holidays is uh, uh, Jewish people taking off from work, uh, walking on the streets, walking on the streets together in families or separately in families, and then uh, joining each other at the synagogue for uh, the high holidays services. And um, every year I feel like when I walk past them, sometimes they look at me, right? When I walk past them with my, uh, and they're dressed up and they, <clears throat> maybe they're carrying some of the more um, Orthodox Jews in my neighborhood carrying um, these plastic bags with, uh, with uh, you know, the, um, with uh, the books in them and maybe uh, a talus, a prayer shawl and, their yarmulke, they're carrying this plastic bag. Plastic, I assume, because in case it rains, right? So it doesn't all get wet. And um, walking uh, to the synagogue. <clears throat> I'm usually walking with their, with their families. So me, alienated from everybody and everything, I always feel even more left out than I usually do, uh, more of an oddball, more of a, a visiting creature from outer space during this time of the year because I'm alienated from this group of people that I grew up with. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, if I'm ever going to fix this situation or change it or alter it in any way, uh, now that I'm 
hurtling towards uh, stepping off the mortal coil. It's time for me to do something about it. So I went over to a synagogue in my neighborhood the other day to find out about Saturday services. And um, all things um, being equal, the fates allowing, God willing, whatever the phrase would be, I'm going to show up at Saturday services and see how it goes. Be among um, people that I grew up with. My people, people with my DNA, I still can't figure out how to refer to to fellow Jews. Well, I went over to this local synagogue and <clears throat> found out about the Saturday services. And it's always, like I say, it's always strange for me to walk into a synagogue. I mean, I, I do that very rarely. And um, I am alienated from my own religion. And I think that has to do with, uh, and this maybe echoes with some other people, and it doesn't have to be just the Jews, right? It could be any religion. If you were brought up strictly or you were brought up in a religion, um, uh, and uh, you also uh, are rebelling against your family for whatever reasons, good reasons, uh, whatever reasons, uh, you rebel against their religious practices too and their religion. Um, people, I know some people who are friends of mine who, um, <clears throat> who are Catholic but not practicing Catholics anymore because there was such, they went to um, Catholic schools and religious schools and it was so strict, it was so strict that they just, uh, they hated it. They hated all of it. And their family insisted on it. Or they grew up in families that were very religious Catholics. And the same goes, I had friends who were, uh, a friend of mine, one of my best friends, grew up um, Baptist, Southern Baptist, uh, oddly enough, in Queens. Uh, his father was displaced because he was had a, a business uh, sales job up north, but they were basically a Southern family. And um, there was a lot of uh, harsh stuff. There was a lot of abuse around religion. Not that he didn't grow up finally seeing the benefits and the beauty and the value of religion for his family, which he has. But uh, he, he felt very strongly about that. So this happens with people. <clears throat> You're brought up either um, <clears throat> treated harshly or badly. It's combined with, uh, being, with the family being religious. And if you rebel against the family, if your family is dysfunctional or abusive or neglectful, you turn your back on the religion too, or at least that's what happened to me. And um, so that alienation remained. And as I say, it was my grandmother. It was my grandmother more than anybody else that kept it alive. And my grandmother, this is a particular thing, I think. Uh, I don't know if it applies to other religions, but it definitely replies to, um, to Jews, um, especially from my grandmother's generation. She came over here in, you know, like 1909, at the age of, uh, or like actually it's around 1900, the age of nine, and an immigrant not speaking any English with a family. She had seven brothers, all of them poor as they could possibly be, living on the Lower East Side. And the history of the Jews, the history of the Jews, uh, <clears throat> persecuted, uh, murdered, uh, you know, kicked out of countries, treated like this for 1,500 years, you know, all over the world, in Europe especially. And they come to this country. And so my grandmother always was um, wanted to preserve her Judaism, preserve her Judaism. And for a lot of Jews, it's not just the religion or going to the synagogue. There's just something about it, preserving the fact that you're Jewish, preserving the fact that you're Jewish. And some people, I'm reading a book recently about um, um, all the Jewish uh, men who created Hollywood, 
the Jewish men who basically invented and created Hollywood, a lot of them turned their back on their religion, very much turned their back on their religion. They couldn't, they grew up poor, they grew up with fathers who were shiftless and poor, and uh, they just couldn't stand anything about their religion and turned their backs on it and just, you know, went to Hollywood and created this America of their own um, desires, right? They became more America than Americans and created America for Americans. Um, so there we are, right? A lot of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, Jewish people, uh, a lot of Christians, Catholics, Protestants, whatever, a lot of, maybe, I don't know if this works for Muslims too much. Don't know much about the Muslim community. But they turned their backs on their families and turned their back on their religion at the same time because they were connected. Um, if I am to go into the synagogue on Saturday, I will be returning in a way, not just to my religion. And I'm not that religious. I, am, I, I can't say I'm religious at all. I mean, do I, I, I ever pray? I noticed the last um, couple of years uh, with all the serious illnesses I have, I find myself praying more. But I'm not sure who I'm praying to. Um, uh, is it some benign presence? Is there a benign presence in the universe? I don't know. All the ills and troubles I've experienced in the last few years, <clears throat> all the loss and the pain and the bad luck, uh, I'm, trying, I'm praying. Who do I pray to? Sometimes I say God. Sometimes I say Lord of the universe. Sometimes I pray to the universe. It's uh, not focused. <laughs> But it's it's from the bottom of my heart. It comes from what? It comes from loss and it comes from pain and comes from grief. And it comes from a desire to connect to something bigger than just my own ego, my own self. And a friend of mine who is a very religious um, Jew, very observant, I should say. I can't speak for what his religion is. I'm sure it's complicated. But he's a faith. He's he's faithful. He believes in God, and I, as I say, I can't say what what his um, definition of his version or his conception of God is. I wouldn't speak for him, but he believes in God, and he observes all the rituals, and he goes to synagogue regularly. And one of the things is gratitude, gratitude. And then I talk to him about the idea of prayer and who do I pray to, and you know, he says, "Well, you've got to be grateful. You got to be grateful for whatever good comes your way in the world." And I've never been grateful. Uh, I've been more um, Bitter, petty, and complaining, which uh, all of you can uh, attest to if you've listened to me for a while. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, if I'm grateful for whatever good has come my way and whatever good I was able to do in the world, even more important, the question remains then, who do I, who do I hold accountable for all the bad that has come my way? The bad luck and the illnesses and the pain and the loss and uh, the troubles and the afflictions that have, uh, have uh, affected my, uh, my children or my wife or her family or my friends. I mean, who do I blame for this? Is it a question of being, if you're going to be grateful to somebody or something, should you not be um, uh, blaming somebody too? Well, maybe the obvious answer is why blame anybody? I mean, I'm sure that many adults listening to me have figured this out long ago, but I'm always in the process of figuring something out uh, way later than most other people do. Um, why blame anybody? It's just, it's all a question of, uh, it's a combination of my heredity, getting older, my own personal karma and luck, you know, what it is I put out into the world, the way I treated other people is the way I've been treated. Uh, what I've put out into the world, um, 
which sometimes hasn't been very much, and that's what I've gotten back, not very much. Um, but is there a benign force? Is there actually, who believes, anybody listening to me now, if you're listening to me and you believe in this, any kind of benign force in the universe that oversees everything, um, get in touch with me. I'd be interested to hear, to have a little dialogue with you. Um, but it seems to me, you know, go back and forth with this, it seems like childish, childlike to hold some invisible force responsible for all the good and some other invisible force responsible for all the bad and all the ill. But one thing, and I was reading this about somebody who I know who is a neuroscientist was telling me, it's natural, and I think everybody knows this, it's natural for the brain to seek balance and order in things. Natural. It's a natural thing that the brain wants to do in color and stability and walking and the way things are arranged around you. So your external world, your external world, and then your intellectual world, uh, your spiritual world, your emotional world, the brain always looks for uh, for order, for balance, for even for reason. Um, life is hard, right? And you're always looking for some plan, some reason why there is all this uh, hardness, why all this trouble. You look, and the brain is finding some way order provides comfort. It's not the illusion of comfort, but it actually provides comfort. I mean, the brain cells are comforted by finding order and reason, reason and balance, right? Uh, but when you look at the behavior of the world, and I'm not talking about nature, that's something that has its own order and balance uh, sometimes, no matter how out of control it seems. It's not out of control. It is what it is. Although human beings have turned it into something awful, right? That's another story. But um, you can't expect nature to be reasonable. So, But, um, but strangely enough, uh, a lot of people, or, or most of us, sometimes keep expecting people, human beings, to be reasonable which is nuts. I mean, <laughs> human, be human beings are not reasonable. They are not reasonable people. Um, well, anyhow. Um, but there must be some peace. There must be some peace to be had, right? And as far as religion goes, being observant, and uh, in my case, being an observant Jew, um, there's an acknowledgement, too. One of the important things is that what do they call it in... in in Islam, I think it actually, the, the Islam translates to, um, to submission, submission. Uh, there's the idea of literally bowing your head or covering your head up with a yarmulke or wearing a hat or bowing your head, I mean, in prayer. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Some acknowledgement, no matter how intelligent or reasonable or logical you may think you are or that you are, just to bow your head in acknowledgement of some greater force, some greater mystery, it doesn't even have to be benign, but something that, you, that you're under, that you're actually under, and that yourself is not, yourself is not the only thing in the world. There's other things. I mean, you're, you exist uh, in a great collective body of other human beings, but you're only one tiny cell. There is some larger, not purpose necessarily or plan, but larger entity, and it is awesome. It can fill you with awe, and you, sometimes you just bow your head. You may be an ambassador to England, lovely. You may like 
Yeah, you have to serve somebody. You have to serve somebody, even if it's just the collective good, even if it's just you know one other person doing doing good for one other person. That service, public service, public service. Uh, my wife and I went to a movie the other day. Uh, it's a small kind of independent film called Menasha, M-E-N-A-S-C-H-E, and it's um. It's a great little movie, really great little movie. It's, uh, um, like I say, it's no Hollywood movie. Um, it's about a poor, and basically the story is about a poor, impulsive guy, not the brightest guy in the world, who's just trying to make his way in, in a small community that he lives in. And also, uh, one of the main themes, if not the main theme of it, is that he's trying to regain custody of his son, uh, who, um, who is staying with uh, his um, his uh, his wife's his he's a widower and he's staying with his uh, late wife's um, brother, so the son's uncle, and uh, the hero of this um, Menasha he uh, he really he wants to get his son back, but he's a hapless kind of guy. In uh, in uh, Yiddish, uh, the word for him would be he's a shlemiel and a shlemazel on that things. He's always doing something wrong, and something wrong is always happening to him. <laughs> He's his own personal karmic wreck, but he st- he means well and he's good-hearted and he's trying to get his son back. So this is really what the uh, what the movie's about. And um, it was a Hasidic. It, it takes place. It looks like a documentary. It's filmed almost like a documentary. I could really recommend this. And it's in Yiddish. Ninety-nine percent of it is spoken in Yiddish because because it takes place in Brooklyn, one of these really insular Hasidic communities, and there are um, English subtitles. So it's like watching a foreign film, and what's even more, um, what's even more uh, uh, interesting about it, and which more impressive is that everybody in this movie is not an actor. 
There are no professional actors in this movie. They're all non-actors. And I've seen these communities before. I mean, I haven't lived in them. I grew up in uh, either, like I say, an alienated Jewish world or <clears throat> if I ever was involved, like when I was a kid, with Judaism and going to synagogues uh, or temples, as we call them. I'm going to go into the temple. Very Greek-influenced, uh, uh, right? Synagogues is a Greek word. So we're going to go to temple, go twice a year, go to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Sometimes <clears throat> there were other holidays we'd go to, which are harvest holidays or celebrations. And, um, but not that deep in involvement, right? And we didn't go to morning services. We didn't go to Saturday services. And some of that had to do with the fact, like I said, my grandmother was, uh, wanted us to remain religious because she really wanted us to remain Jews. She didn't want us to get lost in American culture too much, not too assimilated, not too absorbed, because of the danger involved. She grew up in a place where they had to flee Europe, you know, and then later on the Holocaust took half the family that she left behind, or all the family she left behind. She left about half her cousins and aunts and uncles behind. They were all killed. So she had that experience, right? She had that experience. You've got to be careful. If you're a Jew, you've got to be careful. You've got to stick together. You've got to protect yourself, right? And being too assimilated could be dangerous. That could be dangerous. But um, where was I going with this? Uh, well, so I've, but I have had contact with these communities, uh, even though I wasn't brought up that way. We brought up in what's called conservative Judaism. And it's not like conservative politics. It's a different thing. This is, there is uh, something called reform Judaism, which is sort of very modern and leaning closer to the secular then there's conservative Jews who are the, the most, uh, you know, uh, the most populous Jewish group in the country, although that's being lost out to the Orthodox and the ultra-conservative, the ultra-Orthodox, growing by leaps and bounds because they have a lot of children. And, but this world, I've seen this world. When I was a probation officer in, um, in Brooklyn Family Court, there were two cases that I got involved in that involved uh, one Hasidic, basically Hasidic Jews. And um, it, did not, um, it did not enamor me of, I did not become enamored of this community uh, very much by my exposure to these cases. In, th in this movie, in Menasha, uh, and this, uh, this is something I experienced when I, um, when I w was involved in these two cases in the probation department in the 70s. <clears throat> uh, the people there, it's a man's world. It is. Very, very much a man's world. Well, it's a man's world entirely, right? And only in some places like in Europe and maybe in some places in South America and certainly some places in England and the United States and Canada. But <clears throat> generally speaking, uh, it is becoming less and less of a man's world in these areas I just mentioned. But still, in large parts of the world, it's a man's world. And even in our uh, Trump administration here, God help us all. It's uh, essentially a man's world. I mean, that's a real throwback, this administration, right? Throwback, way back from what Obama had. But uh, in this orthodox world, uh, the women, uh, like I say, it's completely dominated by men. The women um, are supposed to be good wives and mothers, and basically that's it. That's it. Of course, what could possibly be a—there is no harder job or more valuable thing to do in the world than to be a good mother, to be a good mother. But being a good wife, I guess, but being a good mother, this is, uh, as they say in the Bible, as rubies and pearls. There is nothing more valuable than that. Or a good father, too. To be a good parent to your children, 
Nothing more important. There's nothing I ever did in my life. Nothing I ever did in my life, no matter what. No matter whatever artistic thing or whatever physical thing or whatever thing I did in my life, all these things pale in comparison to whatever good I was able to do my kids, especially when they were little. Anyhow, so the, but the women, you just basically do what the men tell you. You cook, you clean, and uh, you're a good wife. You go along with what your husband wants, <clears throat> and you, you, know, you take care of him, and uh, you take care of the kids. And um, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And if you go to the synagogue, you sit in the back, covered up by a veil. And uh, in the Hasidic communities, these women are very much um, um, treated as if they are, um, you know, second-class citizens. But there's a, there's, you know, I don't want to display too much of my ignorance, although it's impossible to do, right? It's possible not to do. But the women, you know, if I talk to somebody who's uh, who's a Hasidic Jew, a couple of times I have, or Orthodox Jew who knows more about the Hasidic community, uh, there is a balance. He claims there is a balance, an equal um, balance between the power and the value and the importance women have and men have. It's just that they have these very, very strict roles. And the men really do make most of the uh, worldly decisions. But um, a lot of the people in these communities, and I've seen them myself, and in this movie you see it too, um, the women especially, and very often the men, are very, what's the word, dour. They're melancholy, they can be depressed, they can be irritated. You don't see a lot of um, enthusiasm and happiness. Uh, there is various reasons for this, but um, it's just, consi- it's, you know, everybody, you see these people dressed up, um, especially if you live in New York City. I don't know how it is in other places. But in New York City, there are um, tens of thousands, maybe a couple of hundred thousand um, Hasidic Jews who dress up in these black you know, coats and black pants and black hats. And uh, they, uh, you don't see them laughing a lot. Sometimes you see them angry. Sometimes you see people irritable. And sometimes they seem depressed. But uh, laughing and being amused and having an easy time of it is not part of the world they live in. And part of that is what has happened to them from the outside forever and still does in some ways. But part of it is the way, um, the way that they have become their own internal community karma. They have become this way. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> some of the uh, Hasidic Jews have men. And I could recommend this movie anyhow. Menashe, it's called. So take a look at it. And if you see it, let me know what you think. Uh, but some of the Hasidic Jews I've met, mostly Lubavitcher Jews, they're called Lubavitcher Jews, followers of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which means rabbi, are very much more enthusiastic, more joyous about their lives. And I've seen, I've seen them smiling all the time, laughing. They enjoy their lives and they have a good time. Um, and this is uh, something, there is joy. There is joy in, in parts of these communities. I'm <laughs> 
Yeah, keep it up a little bit uh, underneath. My gra- <laughs> my grandmother, who is not Hasidic Jew, who is not uh, an Orthodox Jew, um, but she had a very grim attitude towards things. It was her personal psychology and also the way she grew up. Grew up poor. She grew up with seven brothers who did not treat her well. And um, she had a rough time. And her attitude towards men was bad. My grandmother did not think of men as... Uh, as creatures that she admired. She had no respect for men. And she was very grim. I think it's her own, like I say, her own personal psychology. <clears throat> and she took onto herself um, the mantle of, um, of this, uh, <clears throat> of, the, of, you know, the Jews and all their oppression. Some Jews are like that, and especially from that generation. And she didn't smile. She was very grim. But sometimes, one time I went to a wedding with my grandmother uh, to various, you know, you go to weddings. People dance and sing at weddings. And there was my grandmother who practically, who practically never cracked a smile and was very uh, hard. It was a real hard case. She was sitting there and she was humming and moving her hands back and forth, sitting in a chair. She wasn't getting up and dancing, God forbid. But uh, she was humming and she had this little smile on her face. And it was a beautiful thing to see because it, it reminded me of something uh, that she probably had gone through when she was young, one of the few moments or some of the few moments of joy she had as a kid, as a Jew growing up with celebrations in the village she came from. And it was really just a beautiful thing to see my hard, cold grandmother singing and humming like that. <clears throat> Great stuff. And like, yeah, so my grandmother, you know what I mean? She, uh, she kept this. We had seders till I was 15 and when she died. We had seders. We went to the synagogue on the, on the high holidays. Um, <clears throat> and um, I had a bar mitzvah, which she insisted on, which is a whole other story. That was sort of embarrassing that I had a bar, that my bar mitzvah was an embarrassing experience for everybody. But uh, like I said, that's a different story. And there was my father on the other side, although my father was never around, left when I was a kid. But he was very anti-religious. His father, my grandfather, my father's father, was uh, militantly an atheist. And so was, like a lot of the Jews I was talking about, like the guys from Hollywood, who invented Hollywood, who were from Europe originally, they were almost like militantly anti-religious and and almost uh, anti-Jewish in their own way, which is complicated. Something to do with the way they grew up. But my grandmother, like a lot of other people, stuck with it. <clears throat> so she insisted I had a bar mitzvah and all of this. And the big thing about when I was, let's see, about six or seven or eight, when I started, when she started wanting to send me to Hebrew school, maybe I was closer to nine. This was 1954. When I was growing up, 
by the time I really understood anything that was going on in the world, let's say it was uh, six, seven, eight, nine, the state of Israel had been created. The state of Israel had been created, which was a source of incredible pride to people in my grandmother's generation and even in my parents' generation. Incredible pride that after all this time, and I'm not going to go into the politics about it at all because that's a whole other 55 radio shows and, you know, it's sad and it's tragic and it's crazy and who knows what will happen. But the state of Israel was created, was founded, was created, was granted recognition by the United States and by the United Nations and there was a the partition of Palestine and one of the states was Israel a state for Jews. And uh, like I say, I don't want to get into all the, um, the stuff that's been going on since then and is going on now and uh, what looks like almost an inevitable, I mean, now talk about a wall. The, the Jews, the Israelis, and that's something that people always mix together because why not? That's sort of the way it is, right? The Jewish state. The Jews who are in the army, the Jews in the government, the Jews who run everything, who own everything in Israel, Jews. And there are, there are something like a million um, Israeli uh, Arabs, Palestinian uh, members, uh, Muslim members of the Jewish state who belong to, who are Israeli citizens. <clears throat> but they don't have any you know, real power there. So um, when the Palestinians refer and when other uh, people in the area refer to Israelis, they just mix in the Jews, right? And I just did it myself. So, uh, But there was always this prayer at the Seder table, uh, which this prayer, I don't know much about my own religion, obviously, but this prayer had been going on during Passover, and Passover was about the exile, um, you know, about, about leaving Egypt and about, um, and about uh, finding uh, the Jews, finding their way across the desert, and fighting their way and finding their way finally to the promised land, um, quote unquote, the promised land. <laughs> Why did God promise the Jews a land that has no oil on it? It's one of the few places in the entire Middle East that doesn't have any oil. And as far as I know, it doesn't have any really valuable um, minerals in it. A um, lot of God there, not a lot of stuff to sell to make money. But... Uh, there's plenty of industries, especially the tech industry in Israel, that is really uh, booming. Anyhow, so we would sit at the Seder table, and there's this old prayer. Like I say, I don't know if it's in the Bible or it's something that the Jews have been praying or had been praying for up until the time of the state of Israel and even afterwards. Um, there was a prayer, and part of the prayer was it said at the Seder, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. We will all go home. All the Jews will go home to the place where they belong. This is the prayer that everybody had. Although by the time Americans, especially second and third generations, have been praying this way uh, for a long time in this country, uh, way into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that wasn't a realistic thing. People like my parents' generation were very, very happy and proud to be Americans and didn't want to think of themselves, <clears throat> not necessarily, they like to think of themselves, it's okay to think of themselves as Jews, but they didn't want to think of themselves as Israelis. They were Americans and happy to be Americans and proud to be Americans and patriotic Americans. Like a lot of immigrant communities, nobody more patriotic than uh, the second generation of, uh, of immigrants to this country. That would be my parents' generation. <clears throat> but uh, it was a tremendous uh, pride that they had. 
and my grandmother, you know, that these people who had been pushed around for thousands of years, thousands of years, and then the Holocaust and treated like shit, murdered, raped, everything stolen from them, exiled from countries, they finally had a state of their own. Um, recently, actually, I was watching something else with my wife, um, a series which I can recommend also very highly. This is a TV series, not a movie. And I don't know, it's on Netflix or one of those places. Um, it's called Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, F-A-U-D-A, which is um, Arabic. It's an Arabic word for either riot or chaos. And it's about, it tips Israeli for sure because the Israelis made this, but it is an astoundingly, uh, it's often very violent, but it's an, an intense action movie about, um, about a special Israeli commando group and, um, and Palestinian um, terrorists. But uh, as much as it's possible for an Israeli uh, TV show to take, uh, to take anybody else's side, there is uh, a lot, finally after a while, there is so much violence and hypocrisy and craziness on both sides. And there is a lot of sympathy given um, within a certain context, a lot of sympathy given to the, um, to the uh, Palestinians in this movie. And uh, but it's an extraordinarily um, gripping uh, TV series. I forget how many you know uh, episodes it is. But one thing you notice in here is that it's always God, God all the time. In Arabic, it's in Arabic and it's in Hebrew. And sometimes they speak in English when they want to communicate with each other, or sometimes they just speak Arabic. Uh, most of the Arabs did not speak Hebrew, but some of the um, uh, these uh, Hebrew uh, soldiers spoke Arabic. They were doing undercover work, but. No matter what they're doing, if it's trying to plot to blow people up, if it's trying to plot a commando raid where they might have to shoot people or kidnap people, whatever awful thing is going on, may God bless our undertaking. May God have mercy on us. May God give me the courage to whatever. God will give me revenge. God willing. God, 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 God. Either it's Allah or it's Hashem or God. Uh, it's the same God. You look at the, it's an insane, it's an amazing experience. You look at these people and you see it's the same God. These people look the same. They speak a language which is almost exactly the same. And uh, they uh, refer to a God. What other God out there in the desert, out there in the Middle East, out there in this harsh land, um, they're saturated with God. They are soaked with God. God is everywhere to them. And they refer to God, they call on God, they place themselves in God's hands, they curse God. It's the same God. And sometimes you look at them and you see, this is this, this TV series, Fauda. You see them fighting with each other, they look the same. They, they very much act the same. They, um, <clears throat> they speak a language which is so similar. And they pray to this God. Why are they killing each other? Yes, I know, that's a whole other story. Well, anyhow, uh, we are at the end of our hour here, and uh, I am um, going to go to synagogue unless I lose my nerve or decide that I want to stay alienated forever, which I don't. Then tomorrow morning, I will be going over with my wife to the synagogue to participate in uh, Saturday services. So uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I'll be in synagogue. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand for a prayer for the fallen.
Actually, uh, I wanted to say that uh, this is a cantorial music that was um, sung down at the site of the World Trade Center um, at the anniversary uh, dedication <clears throat> and the memorial to the people that died there. Uh, this music really pulls at me. This pulls at me. Pulls me straight back to something. Anyhow, uh, this has been Mike Fader. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. You see these movies or these TV shows. I'd be interested to hear from you. Um, I guess that's about it for this week. Let's go to our end theme. Somewhere down the road away 
glad to be here, happy to feel that. And it don't matter if you're by my side. Well, it's all.